Hey, let me welcome you to this uh, 2012 Cyril Black International Book Forum. My name is Mark Weisinger. I'm the director of Pierce Princeton Institute for International and Regional Studies. Uh, we are the sponsor of this book forum. It's an annual event that we put on. Uh, we usually choose a book uh, on a topical issue uh, of interest um, to broader, broader interest to the public uh, and bring some uh, bring the author here to discuss it and have some Princeton experts as well uh, here to discuss it. So the book forum um, is uh, held in honor of the late Cyril Black. Uh, he was the James S. McConnell Distinguished Professor of History and International Affairs at Princeton. Uh, Cyril Black was a member of the Princeton faculty for 50 years. Uh, he was a renowned historian of Russia. Uh, in East Europe. He was a major figure in the study of modernization. Uh, he was the director of uh, Princeton Center for uh, International Studies, uh, which was the predecessor organization of Pierce. Uh, actually, Cyril Black's daughter is here. Uh, Christina Black uh, honors us here with her presence today. Uh, so the book forum, uh, basically, as I said, we pick a new and important book uh, on a, a topical issue in international affairs. Uh, last year, we focused on the role of the dollar uh, in, international, uh, in the international economic system. The year before that, we focused on America's role in Afghanistan. Uh, the year before that, on uh, the war against terrorism. Uh, so this year, we've decided to focus on the recent upheavals in the Middle East, and specifically uh, on uh, the case of Egypt, uh, the events of, Egypt, of the Egyptian revolution occurring just a little bit over a year ago. So I think we're in for a very interesting conversation today. Uh, the book that we're going to be uh, discussing, uh, this book, The Struggle for Egypt, from Nasser to Takrir Square. Uh, and I should say that there are copies of the book on sale outside uh, if your interest is piqued. Uh, and in fact, our author will be there to sign them uh, if you'd, you'd like to, uh, to read more. Uh, it's written by Stephen Cook. Uh, published by Oxford University Press this past fall. Uh, it is a sweeping account of uh, Egypt in the modern era. Uh, it focuses on the broader evolution of uh, Egyptian politics and society, uh, the factors that led up to the January 25th revolution. So as the title suggests, The Struggle for Egypt, uh, it basically, uh, Dr. Cook argues that over the course of uh, the modern era, Egyptian politics has centered around a contestation, a struggle to define what Egypt is, as he puts it. Uh, and we'll hear more about that, I'm sure, uh, on the panel. So the struggle, the struggle that he describes is an ongoing struggle, and I'm sure we're going to hear a lot about the nature of that ongoing struggle uh, and the forces that are, are shaping it. So in a review that uh, was published this past week uh, in The Economist. The Economist calls this book, quote, a timely, well-researched, and lucid political history. So I think it's an it's a excellent book uh, to sort of orient our discussion uh, on contemporary Egypt. So we're extraordinarily fortunate today to have Stephen Cook here to talk with us about his book uh, and the themes, the larger themes that it raises. Uh, Dr. Cook is the Hasib uh, J. Sabah uh, Senior Fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, he's a leading expert on Arab and Turkish politics and on American policy in the Middle East. Uh, his research is centered on issues of reform uh, in 
uh, the Arab and Islamic worlds. Uh, his other books uh, include Ruling But Not Governing, The Military and Political Development in Egypt, Algeria, and Turkey, which was published in 2007. Uh, he has published widely in a variety of foreign policy journals, uh, opinion magazines, newspapers. Uh, he's a frequent commentator on radio and television. Uh, I should mention that, uh, as I said afterwards, he will be there uh, to sign uh, copies of the book that are on sale outside, and there will be a, uh, a reception as well that you're welcome to, to join us for. We're also very fortunate to have an a, um, excellent group of faculty here uh, to talk about the book. Um, Amani Jamal uh, is Associate Professor of Politics at Princeton. Uh, she's the director of the workshop on Arab political development, which is located here at Pierce. Uh, her research has focused on issues of democratization and civic engagement in the Arab world. She is uh, one of the co-directors of the Arab Barometer, um, which uh, measures public opinion in the Arab world. Uh, she's the author uh, or editor of four books, uh, including her award-winning book, Barriers to Democracy, The Other Side of Social Capital in Palestine and the Arab World. Uh, and her soon-to-be-published book of Empires and Citizens, Authoritarian Durability uh, in the Arab World. Uh, Bernard Heckel uh, is professor of Near Eastern Studies here at Princeton and director of Princeton's Institute uh, for the Transregional Study of the Contemporary Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asia. That's a long title, uh, but uh, um, a lot of interesting things going on there at that institute. Uh, used to be part of Pierce, is now part of the, uh, the Department for Near Eastern Studies here. Uh, he's also a member of the Executive Committee of Pierce. Uh, Professor Heichel's primary research interests center on uh, Islamic political movements and legal thought, as well as the politics and history of Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Uh, he's published extensively on the Salafi movement, which is, of course, uh, important in, in uh, contemporary Egypt as well. Uh, he, including his book, Revival and Reform in Islam, which was published by Cambridge University Press uh, in 2003. And he's currently working on a study uh, on religious politics of Saudi Arabia since the 1950s. Uh, Daniel Kurtzer uh, is the uh, S. Daniel Abraham Professor in Middle Eastern Policy uh, Studies at the Woodrow Wilson School. Uh, during his 29 years in public service, uh, Ambassador Kurtzer has held a number of senior diplomatic uh, and policy positions, including uh, U.S. Ambassador to Egypt uh, from 1997 to 2001, U.S. Ambassador to Israel from 2001 to 2005. Uh, he served as a political officer at the American embassies in Cairo and Tel Aviv, uh, as Deputy Director of the Office of Egyptian Affairs, uh, as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs, uh, as Principal Deputy Assistant of, of uh, Secretary of State for Intelligence and Research, uh, he's been a key actor in formulating U.S. Uh, policy toward the Middle East uh, and is a recipient of uh, many, many uh, government awards uh, recognizing his, his uh, distinguished governmental service. So the way we're going to proceed is the following. We're going to give uh, each of our uh, commentators, the Princeton faculty, about uh, 10 to 12 minutes where they can talk about what they see are, are the interesting themes in this book uh, and the broader issues that it raises. Uh, then we'll give the author a chance to respond, and then we're going to open it up to you to ask questions. So we'll start with Amani. Uh, yeah, that might be best to come up here.
Thank you so much, uh, Professor Weisinger. It's a great honor and privilege to be discussing this book and serving on this panel with my esteemed colleagues, uh, Ambassador Kurtzer and Professor Haeckel. So The Struggle for Egypt um, is really an outstanding book. Uh, it's a, a commanding account of the historical evolution of political developments in Egypt from the British occupation to the present day to Tahrir Square. Um, Cook does a magnificent job really bringing, you know, walking us through important episodes in, in Egypt's history, in Egypt's political development trajectory. Um, if you've read the book, if you haven't, you should, but if you've read it, you'll note that the, the volume was, is not only filled with uh, com a commanding, a, 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 a strong command of, a command of the empirical developments that shape modern Egypt, but also there's these great anecdotes throughout the book that really kind of capture what modern Egypt is all about. So not only are we given a linear progression of political developments of Egypt, but the struggle for Egypt leaves us with the key questions that we still have today. Is the struggle for Egypt a struggle about Egypt's identity? Is it about Egypt's political ideology? Is it about Egypt's future political economy? Is it about the prospects of its future economic development? Is it a struggle about Egypt's political clout in the Arab world, indeed the international arena? And what about the struggle among its own citizens? And furthermore, is the struggle for Egypt about the role of leadership and future leadership in Egypt's political development trajectory? The book authoritatively captures the nuances and dynamics involved in today's tumultuous standoff, if you may, between the military, the citizens, the Muslim Brotherhood, and new political parties that are arising on the political landscape. Reading The Struggle for Egypt, you will appreciate the dynamics of where we are today. Where Cook is right on target is that he is, in my opinion, He's quite precise in identifying one of the key problems that led to the events of Tahrir Square. Now, I want to say, and be fair to Cook, Cook is not in the business of making predictions about the future of Egypt. He's very clear about that. But I'm reading into the book. <laughs> and so where Cook says there seems to be this ideological vacuum that emerges after the fall of Nasser, or during Nasser's reign, but it's very clear toward the latter part of Nasser's regime, the ideological clout, the ideological glue, if you may, that held Egypt together is no longer there. And so what Nasser does towards the end of his reign, indeed what Sadat does, and then what Mubarak does, is they rely on methods where they don't have the legitimacy of their populations. They begin to rely on repression. They re begin to rely on corruption, on co-optation, on methods of rule which don't reflect the interests and the general welfare of citizens in the region. Important in the evolution of Egypt and Egypt's survival and then the events of Tahrir Square is basically Egypt's geostrategic location, indeed its geostrategic utility to foreign powers, especially the United States, and to regional stability, especially in securing the peace process with Israel. These are captured well in Cook's account of what explains not only the development and consolidation of the stable Egypt, or at least what we thought was the stable Egypt throughout the 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s, 
but also where there's this really magnificent analysis and probably and, and perhaps in my opinion it's probably one of the most detailed accounts is this idea of the trilateral versus the bi bi bilateral arrangement um, of Egypt vis-a-vis -vis the United States and Israel. Cook, and I believe he's right on target, to say the United States perhaps, and we're going to get to this in the critique session, so it's, it's not all smooth sailing just yeah, yet, no, 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 but it's very nice that you talk about the utility of Egypt to the United States as one of, as an entity that secures the peace treaty with Israel versus this idea of whether there was ever a bilateral interest or a bilateral strategic relationship between the United States and Israel. And we'll get back to this in the critiques. So all in all, the book is, does a magnificent job capturing both domestic level realities, domestic level pressures on the regimes, domestic level evolutions, and also bringing in regional and international influences moving forward. Now my critique, so I think I've, everybody must buy the book. <laughs> but the critique is Cook takes what is, what in my opinion is both an admirable but somewhat questionable position in the book, where basically the conclusion of the book argues U.S. involvement in the region, more or less, has really not produced the desired outcome that we, we wished for a place like Egypt, right? We don't have a good track record in Egypt. And I'm not paraphrasing. I mean, I, 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 this is my own interpretation, so, you know, Cook might disagree with the way I've interpreted the book. And therefore, Cook believes that more or less moving forward, especially after the events of Tahrir Square, the United States will be well advised to take a hands-off approach as the current events unfold. And I want to play devil's advocate. For most of the book, Cook tells us how the United States made things almost worse in Egypt, if I may. It supported regimes that were not popular supported treaties that were not necessarily in the what was viewed in the interest of the, the people. It didn't come down on um, certain issues that would have won these regimes favor among their own people, even when these regimes were not quite favorable. And we'll get back to that in just a bit. Um, it supported corrupt regimes and overinflated bureaucracies. It supported more or less or turned a blind eye to inefficient economic development projects and now there's a lot of work that needs to be done in Egypt to correct the path, the past. And if the United States now is not going to be involved in, quote unquote, the reconstruction of Egypt, and I'm not an interventionist, but I'm just playing devil's advocate, then what will become of Egypt? Can we continue if the prognosis out there is that a Egypt today cannot survive without foreign aid, without aid, without economic development, without an aggressive international community standing by in Egypt as it economically progresses, should the United States take, take a hands-off policy moving forward? In other words, is non-intervention really the desired outcome here? And if we continue, especially to fund the military without conditionality, which would require more intervention, how do we resolve, how do we resolve this conundrum, if you may, looking forward? Now, I've read a lot of reviews of, of Cook's book. Um, you know, Steve is a good friend, and, 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 and I like to follow his career. Um, 
And the, the, the reviews, it was, it was interesting to me when you read reviews like in the New York Times and other places, the book often, the, the reviews often focus on the domestic dimension of the Nasser and Sadat and Mubarak eras. But the last hundred pages of Cook's book is really dedicated to this issue of the trilateral relationship. And Cook tries to unpack this relationship in a very interesting and, 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 and powerful way, in ways which people don't talk about uh, fully and, and as we think about where the events of Tahrir Square, where the events of the Egyptian Revolution are going to move forward. And where Cook, I believe, lays the blame, and I could be wrong, I mean, there's a lot of blaming going on in the book, and we can say it was the authoritarian leaders themselves, it was the inefficient economic policies, but where I think if, 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 if Cook is going, if we're going to say there's one tipping point in Cook's analysis, and again, I might be reading into the analysis, I believe it's the policies of the Bush administration which made it very difficult for leaders who were friends of the United States to justify the actions of the Bush administration in the region with the war on terror, with the war on Iraq, with other events in the region. And I believe Cook says quite potently is that all of a sudden when the citizens went out in Cairo to demonstrate against the events in Iraq, to demonstrate against the, the, intifada, the second intifada and all that, they also started linking in the current regime with their protest, that Mubarak was part of the same problem that the citizens were targeting. And Cook basically says it was the nature of the trilateral relationship, that even when Egypt wanted a bilateral relationship, especially one focused on international political development, international economic development, the preference in DC was the maintenance of the trilateral relationship. Now, I don't know how, how people would respond to that in DC, whether I'm simplifying what you said or not, but more or less, if we had privileged the trilateral relationship over the bilateral relationship, what does this mean for our priorities moving forward vis-a-vis -vis Egypt, given the fact that nothing's, you know, yes, we have a more favorable president in power, but the policies really haven't shifted moving forward. I'm going to leave my comments there, and I look forward to the question and answer session. Thank you very much. OK, second, we'll have Bernie Haeckel. Um, thank you very much for, for the invitation. And again, uh, it's. Uh, a pleasure to be discussing this book. It's really an excellent and fine-grained study of Egyptian politics and going back to the 19th century, but focusing principally on the period uh, from 1952 onwards. Um, I think I think Cook, and, and again, I think you should all buy this book. And I would I would use it myself in in, uh, in my teaching. You see in the book a very acute sensibility for the nationalism of the Egyptians and the very problematic relationship they have, they have had with every foreign power, whether it be the British, the French, before the British, and uh, of course now the Americans. And he is, uh, to his credit, if you look at his other publications as well, uh, perhaps the best analyst in this country on the Egyptian military, on its internal rivalries and divisions, and, and its relationship to the, to the Egyptian people, and the military as a symbol of uh, of something in Egypt that's very important and potent. And I will get back to the military uh, momentarily. 
What's nice also in the book is it shows you how in 1952, when the military officers came to power, they really didn't expect to stay there for very long. And when they decided that they could stay on in power, they pursued ad hoc policies that are very comparable to the ones that are being pursued today by the SCAF, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces. And so there are echoes throughout the book of between what's happening today and what has happened in the past. And that shows a historian's sensibility. And are you actually a historian? I'm a political scientist. Okay. Well, well it's, 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 it's high praise from me. Um, it, he also shows the loss of legitimacy uh, that, as, as uh, Professor Jamal points out, the loss of legitimacy that uh, the Nasser regime towards the end and all, certainly the Sadat and Mubarak regime have uh, faced when uh, they basically could no longer keep up the promises that they had made, that there was a disjuncture between the ideology and the reality on the ground. And as that, as that chasm increased, the, these regimes relied on repression more and more. Um, and, uh, and that this repression clashed with this more communal vision of Egyptian society, uh, which was anchored in a discourse on, of patriotism, sacrifice, and, uh, and, and this discourse no long, increasingly rang hollow in Egypt as the repression increased over time. He also displays considerable humility when he acknowledges that the 2011 revolution was utterly unpredictable, and it is still, till today, unclear what made 2011 different from a series of events that had happened earlier uh, that could have very easily also ended up uh, with the same outcome. He's equally modest in speculating about the future and writes that the revolution might go in any number of directions, including some that would very likely be, be unwelcome in Washington and elsewhere. He's, I think, correct, and this is my reading of the, of the book. Uh, I think, unlike, unlike Professor Jamal's, I think he argues for a very minimal role for the US uh, going forward and in its policies with respect to Egypt, that in fact it might be time for the US to resign itself to a much more complicated and difficult situation in the Middle East and certainly in Egypt, where unlike in the past, Egypt will no longer act as the loyal ally, uh, as certainly since Sadat's time and well into Mubarak's, so that the the, the pursuit of American goals in the Middle East, which are not just the peace with Israel, but also the free and reliable flow of oil from the Persian Gulf countries, um, that will become much more expensive for the Americans to maintain. Egypt, in a way, made it much less costly for the US to pursue its interests in the region. And that is no longer likely to be the case looking forward. What I would like to, though, pursue in the last remaining minutes of my comments is to ask a series of questions, and perhaps also to um, de describe my own vision of where I think Egypt is going. And it's a very pessimistic vision. I would like to ask, let me just begin with a series of questions. I, I would like to ask you about the institutions in Egypt beyond the army that you think are likely to play an important and moderating and perhaps even democratizing role looking, looking in, uh, from today uh, into the future. Also, specifically with re regard to the military, the Egyptian military, which controls a very large section of the Egyptian economy, 
I mean, there are various estimates. I don't know how much of the economy they control, but they're not unlike the Pakistani military in that respect. How would they, how can they be made to relinquish effective power? And while guaranteeing perhaps this role that they have and the goodies that they benefit from the economy, um, perhaps is, is, there, is there a constitutional framework that could build in, in, you know, one could build into the constitutional framework a set of promises to them that would encourage them to relinquish power. Also, what do you make of the many rumors and conspiracy theories that abound in Egypt today and that I think are you know, extremely problematic because, for, for any number of reasons, but not least of which is, is that it allows the military to, to remain in power and, and not relinquish power. The other, the other uh, this is, if there is one criticism, it would be that I wish there was more political economy in, in the book and more about economics and specifically whether the rise in commodity prices may have played a role in what we have seen unfold in the last year. More specifically with regard to economics, the way I see the neoliberal economic policies that were basically uh, developed in, in the West and specifically in Washington DC and then foisted on many of the countries of the third world is that these neoliberal economic policies led to the effective failure of the developmental state, the post-colonial developmental state and established this, an, an alliance between the rulers and a number of kleptocratic crony capitalists around the rulers who um, basically built the country and created a huge divide between those who have and those who have not. And if you could address that, the failure of, of that neoliberal economic model and what, again, looking forward economically might be a possibility. Because we are looking at a country, in the case of Egypt, where even under the best of circumstances, with the best of governments, you still have very large millions of people who are unemployed and who are desperate to seek jobs. And where are these jobs going to come from? Um, I would also like to point out that, as many Arabs know and many Arabs say, that if Egypt does work, if somehow Egypt were to um, end up working, by which I mean you have a government that is accountable and you have a degree of transparency and, rep and good representation, then the entire region will change. Egypt is key in that respect for other Arab countries. With all due respect to Tunisia and even my own country, Lebanon, Lebanon could work, Tunisia could work, it won't really make much difference for the rest of the region. Whereas if Egypt does, it could actually have that, have that effect. And I, I, I'm not sure if it will, not only because of the economic uh, problems that I, I have just outlined, but also because of the rise of groups like the Salafis, about whom I know quite a bit. And the fact that they were the people who were very much against the revolution until even after the revolution started, and yet still managed to get 25 or almost 25% of the vote and representation in parliament is very problematic. And this then raises the question about Islamists in general and Salafis in, in particular as to their future commitments to democratic principles and what you think about that. So with, with, with those comments, I, I, I would like to thank you. And again, I would like to all, encourage you all to read this very fine book. Thank you. Uh, finally, Ambassador Kurtzer.
Good afternoon. Uh, first, I want to thank peers and the family, the late Professor Black, for sponsoring this event and uh, making a very good choice of a book to analyze. Uh, Stephen Cook is, uh, an, epitomizes the uh, phrase that it's smarter to be lucky than lucky to be smart. For had this book been published a couple of months earlier, it would have been interesting, but it would have been relegated to uh, some library bookshelf. But uh, coming out as it did uh, just after the uprising and allowing uh, Stephen to uh, add to what was already a good book, a concluding chapter that gave us some insight into the uprising makes it not only important as uh, lessons in history, but also uh, gives us an idea of what may lie ahead. For those of us here who have tried to understand Egypt as uh, visitors, tourists, uh, practitioners, academics, what we've come to know is a society that's built on contradictions and a society that largely conducts its affairs behind a number of veils that make it very, very challenging for a foreigner to penetrate and to uh, appreciate what's happening behind those veils. Uh, what the value of this book is, is that uh, Cook has, in fact, uh, penetrated at least some of those veils and provided us some insights drawn from history that allow us to at least begin to grapple with the contradictions that make up this 6,000-plus-year society. Uh, if you want my real view about the book, you have to buy it because on the back is my blurb that says nice things. I won't repeat them here. It'll be an incentive for you to actually pick up the book and take a look at it. What I do want to talk about, though, are some of the issues that uh, Stephen Cook raised and then pose a number of questions that uh, he began to grapple with, but uh, to his uh, defense uh, probably uh, would be impossible to answer, uh, certainly in one volume. Uh, Egypt is one of the um, countries now in a region that's in the midst of turmoil that might be called uh, the democratizing trend. And there are only three, maybe you might argue only two countries who would even fit into that category. Tunisia, which is probably the most advanced on the road towards what we hope would be liberal democracy. Egypt, which has the kinds of uh, questions about it that we've heard from uh, Professor Jamal and Professor Haeckel, and which we read about in the book, and Libya, which is of its own category, but may end up heading down that road towards democratization. But as you say that, and as I mentioned to Steve last night uh, when he was kind enough to actually teach a class for me, um, one leaves Egypt uh, today, as I did just two weeks ago, with absolutely contradictory impressions of this society in line with the contradictions of Egypt generally. On the one hand, to the good news, as Stephen will tell you, and as you learn from the book, is that this is a society that one year into its revolution is actually making some progress. It's had a free, fair, and relatively democratic election. It's produced an outcome that may have disappointed some people in Washington and elsewhere, but was not unexpected for those who understood how the Islamic movements in Egypt had gone underground, but had gained enough support, both positive, but also support drawn from the negative feelings that people had about other existing political forces in the country. So on the one hand, you leave Egypt and say, you know, this is a work in progress, and it's got problems, but uh, life may end up being okay. But you also leave Egypt uh, having experienced a police state and repression, which in some respects is even worse than we saw under Nasser, 
uh, people being hauled off in the middle of the night, uh, people being sent into exile for fear of being hauled off in the middle of the night, a kind of uh, police state atmosphere, which even in the worst times of the Mubarak regime, uh, one didn't get this same kind of a sense. Uh, you have, as Professor Haeckel just mentioned, this conspiracy theory mentality of foreigners, uh, whether it's Americans or Zionists or Israelis or you name it, being responsible for whatever it is that's ailing Egypt and therefore excusing those who are running the country from the responsibility to actually produce results. There are major questions now about whether or not the economic progress that was registered under Mubarak, and I use that word progress advisedly, because as uh, Professor Cook or Dr. Cook said to my class last night, we tend to think that uh, issues such as the gap between rich and poor were widening during the Mubarak years. But in fact, as World Bank statistics tell us, that gap was narrowing, even as Egypt's economy was progressing. But will a successor government to the Mubarak regime actually continue those kinds of reforms, continue this effort to build Egypt uh, in a more liberal economic fashion, or will it revert to an Arab socialism that uh, predominated during the years of uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser and uh, brought Egypt down to such uh, depths of economic uh, activity? Could Egypt's quest for national honor and dignity, one of the issues that drove this revolution, actually lead it to call into question and maybe reverse the peace treaty with Israel, and therefore bring Egypt back into a position of a frontline confrontation state. And what does that mean, finally, for the United States? Whether or not the investment of perhaps $70 billion of American assistance will end up being seen as worthwhile, the fact is that the United States gained a great deal of strategic cooperation and political support from the relationship with Egypt, which now stands at the precipice. And the question is, will it continue under a successor regime? Two of the issues that uh, the book uh, analyzes, but also uh, leaves us wondering where things will head in the future, relate, of course, to the future of the Islamist movements in Egypt, and as Professor Haeckel and Professor Jamal indicated, the role of the military in whatever political formation emerges as a result of this revolution. And we don't know so much about either of these institutions, both of which have been totally opaque to uh, outsiders trying to understand them. We don't know what Islamists are thinking. They have operated underground in the case of the Muslim Brotherhood since 1928 when it was formed, and they know how to keep their views uh, untransparent to the outside world. We do now, because of the internet and the ability to at least see some of the internal debates going on within Brotherhood forums, we do know now that there is a debate among an older and a younger generation about whether or not the movement should remain ideologically pure or, should it, or whether it should open up more to women, to Christians, and uh, present itself as a, a, a more potent political force within society. But we don't know where that debate's going to end up, and we don't know what it means for the movements, whether it's the Brotherhood or the Salafist movement, what it means on <clears throat> issues such as free speech. Can you have free speech in a society that's largely governed by Islamists? We had the experience a few years ago of the, what was it, the Danish question, the pictures of Muhammad. Is that a question of free speech, or is that a profanation of religion? 
What about the movement's attitude towards women and women's rights? We do know that uh, 10 years ago, the uh, Arab Human Development Reports indicated that one of the main issues holding back progress in the Arab world was the degree to which uh, women were not uh, afforded equality. Will Egypt turn its back on the progress towards equality and therefore handicap itself as it moves forward in the years ahead because of religious uh, pressures? And we don't know Islamic attitudes towards, Islamist attitudes towards basic issues related to foreign policy. It's given rise to a rumor in Cairo that perhaps the Islamists and the military will cut a deal whereby the Islamists focus on domestic issues and the military focuses on foreign policy issues were it to be so easy. And it may be that this may be one of the challenges that is most difficult to overcome. But if we think it's hard to understand the Islamist movement, even after we read Stephen Cook's book, he also tells us it's very hard to understand what's going on inside a military, which despite the fact of such close relations between the United States and the military for so many years, we don't understand military attitudes and military uh, views. As uh, Stephen suggested in uh, an earlier book and uh, repeats here, this military wants to rule but not govern, but is that going to be an option available to them? Has the taste of power uh, sitting as they have as the Supreme Council and the Armed Forces the scaff over the past year and running the country either soured them on the idea of both ruling and governing or has it whetted their appetite to continue to stand not behind the throne of power but actually sit on that throne of power. The economic equities, as was suggested by our earlier speakers that the military has in this society, and we don't know, as Professor Haeckel suggested, whether it's 20% or 60% of Egypt's economic output, but it is extraordinarily substantial. And it represents a, a factor in military thinking that goes beyond what's good, what is, what is for the national good and what is for the good of the military. And how does the military protect those equities in a situation of um, economic stress and uh, change? So there may be what we are seeing today, a short-term convergence of interests between the military and the Islamists, but how long can that last? And how long can these two trends within Egyptian society find a way to live together as they may head off in quite different directions? The bottom line then, as we approach uh, the reading of Stephen Cook's book and the presentation that he's about to give, is that Egypt, after 6,000 years and after a revolution, remains a work in progress. And it's a work in progress beset by the uh, contradictions that uh, we all know, but also by the fact that today, in the aftermath of this revolution, there is no architect and there's no designer. There's no Gamal Abdel Nasser, for better or worse, who has emerged and has seized the attention of the Egyptian people to a point where he could then mold and shape the character of the state. The idea of there being a Gamal Abdel Nasser may, in fact, have been so discredited by the 30 years of Hosni Muhammad Mubarak, that it may be that Egypt uh, is rudderless and leaderless for an extended period of time. And so only with the help of a book like uh, what Stephen Cook has written might we begin to answer uh, some of these uh, fundamental questions. Will this revolution, in fact, draw inspiration from Nasser, Sadat, or Mubarak, or will it turn its back on everything that happened in the past 60 years both that which was uh, bad as well as that which was positive. 
will there be an ideology that uh, uh, Dr. Cook indicates so far has eluded uh, Egypt, but uh, is there an ideology in the making that uh, may be formed around the idea of an Arab democracy in which Egypt is a pioneer and perhaps a, a beacon? Uh, can Islamists govern? Uh, Egypt will be a far more important test case than even Tunisia, which is, as I said, more advanced on this road to democracy. Because if Islamists can govern in Egypt in a manner that also uh, reaches out to minorities, especially to women, that provides for equal rights, then it changes not only our perceptions of Islamists, but also what we might uh, look for in uh, future uh, upheavals and future change in the Middle East. As far as the United States is concerned, the big question is, will Egypt, as a result of this conspiracy-minded theory and activity that has now taken hold and taken uh, such a toll on Egyptian-U.S. relations, uh, actually tear down what has become a, a very important um, architecture of strategic cooperation between our two countries? It's one thing to uh, slap us on the wrist for activities that the Egyptians don't like with respect to our NGOs. It's quite another to call into question the basic orientation of American policy and whether or not the Egyptians, for their part, and our political system, for our part, can find a way to mediate these differences may be one of the biggest challenges of all in this period of the Egyptian revolution. Thank you. So we'll turn the floor over to the author, Stephen Cook. Uh, to respond to those questions and to say what he would like to say from. Well, uh, thank you very much. Before I, I, I get into a discussion of the book and the, and the answers to these questions, and then we throw it open to the to the to the floor for Q and A and discussion. There's there's uh, first I'd like to thank Mark Messenger for inviting me here uh, to Princeton. It's always a pleasure to come to Princeton. For those of you out there who know me. I have, uh, I have good friends in the area. Uh, I had uh, a girlfriend who went to Princeton. Uh, I have friends who teach here. Um, and um, it's always a great excuse to come and have breakfast at PJ's. Um, and I, I, I leapt at the, the opportunity to come because I always find it ironic when I am asked to come and speak at Princeton, uh, a, a university into which I was, from which I was rejected. Uh, so it's, it's, it's great to be here. I enjoy that irony very much. Um, I want to uh, thank Amani Jamal, Bernie Heichel, and Ambassador Dan Kurtzer, in particular Ambassador Kurtzer, from whom I have learned a lot over the years um, and was kind enough when he was in residence in Cairo uh, to spend some time with um, uh, a then and still unknown grad, well, not still a graduate student, but relatively unknown, uh, who had a lot of questions about, uh, about Egypt. I want to thank um, the, the Black family for uh, endowing this, uh, this wonderful uh, book forum. And I just want to recognize a few notables uh, who've, uh, who've uh, taken time out of their day to come and, and, and take part in this today. My, my good friend Adam Pector, the president of Pector Polls, which is based here in uh, Princeton, New Jersey, is doing wonderful work in the Middle East and Africa. Um, I see the parents of my good friend David Pervin uh, here. I don't know from whom uh, the genetics uh, come, but David is unique in providing um, advice uh, unvarnished advice, uh, bark stripping advice, and um, David helped make the struggle for Egypt uh, a lot better. And uh, of course, L. Carl Brown, uh, who uh, someone else who I've learned uh, quite a bit from. Um, let me just uh, go in the order in which we, we heard from uh, my uh, learned and uh, accomplished interlocutors. 
First, um, uh, Manny Jamal, I wanted to get up and walk out when she called it outstanding. I figured that would be a great way to begin and end the, the afternoon and the evening, but I, I have committed to, uh, to responding to what people say, and I, I just want to say, Manny, I agree. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It is, though, it is, though uh, by way of introduction, uh, it is gratifying to hear from, from um, three accomplished and learned people like um, Manny and, and, and Bernie and Ambassador Kurtzer uh, to talk about the book this way. This was, I had talked to my editor at Oxford. I wanted to call this My Struggle for Egypt. Um, they ruled that out, um, so we called it The Struggle for Egypt. Um, but it is extraordinarily gratifying. This is, in many ways, my love letter uh, to Egypt. There is a, a saying in Egypt that if you sip uh, the water of the Nile, you'll come back again. And uh, almost 18 years ago, I did sip the water of the Nile. And uh, Egypt is not for, for everyone. It's not for the faint of heart. Um, and I guess I, I'm not everyone and not the faint of heart. Uh, in the introduction to the book, I talk about how Cairo uh, tends to overwhelm all five senses at once and that it, it's quite a rush. And um, it has been that rush for, for the better part of 18 years. And I, 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 the, the struggle, the, the, the time it takes to, to research and write a, a, a book like this um, makes all of this uh, quite gratifying. So thank you very much. Um, I, I want to pick up on a, a, a couple of things that uh, Amani said, not just the, the good things, but her, her, her thankfully gentle criticism uh, of the book. And, and much of it is, is devoted to the, to the U.S. role uh, in, in Egypt. And there were a number of kind of radical underlying messages that I wanted to get across in, in writing the book. And one of them was something that I have perceived for, for quite some time and something that comes across uh, in, in the research that I've done, the in extensive interviewing that I've done, and, and a, a general atmosphere that the United States and the strategic alignment with the United States had over time become a critical and negative factor in Egyptian politics itself, that Egyptian political actors used uh, against each other in their efforts uh, to improve their political prospects over time. Uh, we walked into this relationship in the 1970s, for we meaning the United States, for some very, very good reasons, good strategic reasons. But over the course of 30 years, uh, that relationship no longer made sense. It became outmoded. That's from the American perspective. But from the Egyptian perspective, in looking at the broad sweep of Egyptian history, looking at the very basis on which this regime that was founded by military officers in the early 1950s and their claim to legitimacy, this strategic alignment never actually made sense in the context of Egyptian history and Egyptian nationalism. Part of this struggle that has been going on for so long has been a struggle for national dignity. Now, I spent some time in Tahrir Square during the uprising. And not only were people demanding an end to the regime, not only were people demanding an end, uh, a, a more democratic and open system, an end to the manipulations and violence of the regime, but they were saying, hold up your head, hold up your head. That's not to suggest that the uprising was about the strategic alignment between uh, the United States and Egypt, but that there is a sense that Egypt, Egypt, Egyptians now finally have a time to write their own history. Without, without some dominating foreign power. Now, of course, the United States didn't occupy Egypt in the way that the British did. But to some, and I'd say to more than some, there were real similarities to that. 
right down to, and this was striking to me, the AID contractors nestled into Egyptian ministries, offering their advice about what to do. We were, yet again, another Western power arriving on the shores of Egypt to give them the keys to modernization, when Egyptians, quite frankly, don't want that, and they no longer want it. Now, I think, Imani, you were coming close in reading into, into the text. It's not necessarily a hands-off approach that I'm advocating. What I am advocating, though, is a less-is-more approach. Being mindful of our history in Egypt and uh, understanding what became of the relationship uh, and the unintended consequences of that relationship. We've done wonderful things in Egypt, as, as Ambassador Kurtzer can attest, through the U.S. Agency of Inter for International Development. Rural electrification. Um, we serve as the backstop of uh, the Egyptian public health system. We quadruple, helped qu to quadruple the income of rural farmers. Uh, all kinds of infrastructure, all kinds of things that helped Egyptians. We did uh, through both strategic interest and our own generosity and, and altruism. However, there is first an opposition and a revolutionary narrative that which we need to be aware. And that is that primarily the strategic alignment between the United States and Egypt warped Egyptian foreign policy and rendered Egypt a secondary or second-rate power in the region. All of the great things that we have done does not, does not, is overshadowed by that general sense of what the relationship with the United States has done to Egypt, in addition to the fact that we supported uh, uh, an authoritarian regime. And knowing that, knowing that, what we need to do is to respond to Egyptians. What is it that they want us to do, that, and we should respond to them as best as we possibly can? One of my favorite anecdotes in the book comes in um, chapter 6 which is called Radar Contact Loss. And I do hope that you, you buy the book. I do not hope that you read Chapter 6 on an airplane. Don't read Chapter 6 on an airplane. Just a little teaser. But in, in, in that chapter, I, I spent a long time hanging out with another former ambassador to Egypt, Nicholas Veliotis, who is filled with tremendous stories and tremendous insight during his time in Egypt. And he did something what I thought was exactly, and this was at the dawn of the strategic relations, Exactly what we should be doing now. A U.S. ambassador showing up to Egyptians and saying, I'm not going to tell you what I can do for you. Tell me what, what you want me to do, and let me see if I can do it for you. And it was amazing. What, what they asked him to do was if the United States can replace the turbines that run the high dam in Aswan. Which, you know, as I said, this would warm the, 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 the heart of the coldest cold warrior. And when they towed those turbines up the Nile, he brought the entire embassy staff out on the banks of the Nile. Everybody cheered as they went by. But it, it is responding to Egyptians rather than telling Egyptians what they should be doing. We shouldn't necessarily be parachuting U.S. officials into Tahrir Square with MEPI and Middle East Partnership Initiative and USAID grants. We should be responding to what it is that they want from us. Now, what does this mean? And this is, this is getting into, uh, away from what Amani was talking about, although I'd like, to, I'd like to come back to it in her comments about the Bush administration. But what this means, I think, for the U.S.-Egypt relationship is something that, in the process of, of writing this book, and one of the things that, that encouraged me to write the book was 
the idea of a healthy bit of distance between uh, the two countries. You know, there's, I spent a lot of time in the book, the first five chapters, talking about that gap between what Egyptian officialdom was saying about Egyptian society and saying and telling Egyptians what they were experiencing and what Egyptians were actually experiencing. And there was a similar gap that developed over the course of our 30-year strategic relationship with Egyptians about what we said publicly about the relationship and the way we actually experienced uh, the way we actually experienced this relationship. And it strikes me that at this moment of national empowerment and national dignity, there is a tremendous amount of work to do. You're absolutely right. But that maybe that work shouldn't necessarily be done by us. It shouldn't necessarily be shouldered by us. Yes, we should use whatever influence we have left in international fora and dealing with international financial institutions and, uh, and, and wherever our influence remains felt when it comes to Egypt to do what we think is best or what the Egyptians would like for us to think is best for Egypt. But this is no longer, this has never been, and it's no longer our place to help Egyptians write their own history. It's time for them to write their own history. And I think we should stand by and honor that. Uh, and ultimately, that would be better for the U.S.-Egypt relationship. And as I say in the book, that if the Egyptians are even half successful in doing what they want to do domestically and half successful in carving out an independent foreign policy, which they believe they lost over the course of 30 years, they will likely be a more appropriate interlocutor for the United States in the Arab world. It was, after all, a powerful, influential Egypt that made Egypt so attractive to the United States, not the perception widely held by many, many Egyptians and many people in the region that Egypt is just a lackey of the United States. That has not served either country's interests over the course of the last 10 or 15 years. And a few other things on this question of, of DC, now that I've given away my punchline on the US-Egypt relationship, Amani asked about, did I think that the Bush administration, or was your perception that the Bush administration was a, a tipping point of sort. And you know, I hadn't thought about it in that way. And I don't like generally don't like the 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 concept of tipping point, not only because I'm resentful that what's his name made twelve gazillion dollars off to this off of this book, um, it would I never will, and that that tipping point, you only know when something's a tipping point after the fact. It's not an analytically it's 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 not predictive at all. It's like, have we turned the corner? Well, we only know if we've turned the corner if we've actually turned the corner. But what the Bush administration did, what its policies did, was in it, obviously in an unintended way, highlight for Egyptians um, the contradictions of the Egyptian regime. It, it, it is, in thinking back on March 20th, 2003, does everybody remember that date? That's a very, very important date. When tens of thousands of young Egyptians descended on Tahrir Square like they did in January 25th, 2011, to oppose the US invasion of Iraq, that yes, they screamed, we don't like the United States, and George Bush is a jerk, and they burned an American flag, and Israeli flags, and so on. But the most important thing that they were saying was that a more democratic Egypt would be better equipped to oppose what they believed to be the predatory policies of the United States and by association Israel in the region. That was 
an extraordinary moment for which clearly the regime was, was not prepared because they gave actually a permit for this protest as a way of releasing pressure on the regime. And a variety of forces were coming together at that moment um, uh, that laid the groundwork for almost a decade uh, of street protest in Egypt. Now, I, I would never, though, say that the, the Bush administration, whether it, it's democratization policies or not, were, were the cause for this. But it certainly, in an un, unintended ways, highlighted the, contradic- the contradictions of the regime in ways that, as I said, I think helped lay the groundwork for this. Um, let me turn to, to, to Professor Heichel's uh, comments uh, before I then finish up with um, Ambassador Kurtzer. The, 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 cry, the crying out for more economy, uh, that is a criticism that I have heard. And um, I say that as a political scientist playing historian who also took a fair amount of advanced economics in graduate school. Um, to me, it's obviously critical. And, and, and the part of the book that I had the most fun writing, there's a part called From, From Omar Effendi to City Stars, which I just had a blast writing because Basically, my research was wandering through the formerly state-owned department store Omar Effendi, which is really on its last legs, and then hopping into a taxi and going to City Stars, which, I don't know, what's the big mall? The King of Prussia, or anybody who's ever been in the D.C. area, the Tysons too, makes these places look small and makes these places look like they are, you know, kind of composed of schlock stores. This is the, the it's extraordinary. Um, I had a tremendous amount of, of fun writing that, and but I think this uprising, although this gap between rich and poor, the perception of which was growing, but actually it wasn't shrinking; it was it was essentially staying the same, was an important part of the narrative about Egyptian society on the eve of the uprising. This uprising, to my mind, and and this may be the the, the romance of the barricades. I was there for the first four days until my wife pulled me out under threat of bodily harm. Um, uh, she said, I know you're going to stay, but you're really not. Um, was, to my mind, an uprising about ideas, about democracy, about freedom, about, um, in a very political science way, about people being able to process their grievances through institutions in a way in a way, as I, as I finished the book, in, in hearkening in what I call the ghosts of the 1950s, what Egyptians are demanding today, these ideas, are precisely what they've been demanding leading up to the coup in 1952 and throughout. Uh, national empowerment and, and dignity, social justice, and representative government. It was hard not to think about previous moments of nationalist agitation or political upheaval in Egypt, 1968, 1972, uh, the great nationalist affront of 1942, the 1919 nationalist revolution, while I was standing in Tahrir Square. I'm, you know, maybe I was the only one because I had marinated myself in Egyptian history and politics for the previous two and a half years. But I think that this, this uprising was first and foremost about those ideas. Now, that's not to suggest that the economy is not uh, obviously an enormous issue. And my sense is that this question of neoliberal economic policies versus a return to something else is going to be part of one of the struggles that animates Egyptian politics going forward for six, nine, 12, two years, three years, on and on. Because 
the problem wasn't necessarily, at least to my mind, we can fight this out, was not the neoliberal economic reforms themselves. After all, all the data suggests that the macroeconomic indicators in Egypt on the eve of the revolution were, lo were looking very, very good. The problem was an unstable and perverse political and legal order that made this crony capitalism corruption possible. The problem is, as we all know, is politics is perception. So the revolutionary narrative is that these neoliberal economic policies made these things happen, created these distortions. And the left and labor, the sleeping giants of Egyptian politics now, although they've been very powerful in the past and may yet be powerful, and I expect that they will, have a very different narrative. That if you ask Egyptians what kind of economic model they want, they may not articulate that kind of social, vaguely socialist uh, uh, vaguely socialist system of the 1950s and 1960s, but they sure, those who remember or who've read about it, will articulate something along those lines. Because that was the last time that the principles articulated by the regime and the everyday reality of average Egyptians came closest. Came closest in that period in the mid-1950s and mid-1960s where the Egyptian economy under Nasser actually did very well. There was expanding social opportunity. There was expanding educational opportunity, in addition to the fact that there was uh, a sense of Egyptian purpose. There was an, an idea of what Egypt, Egypt stood for. Egypt had achieved some, some power. And I think that if you read between the lines, that's what Egyptians think about when they think about, to some extent, uh, uh, the future. Um, on this question of, uh, of Salafis and the, and the rise of Islamists, and now I'm kind of combining what Professor Hegel and, and, and Ambassador Kurtzer said, you know, it, it, the, the really slimy thing for me to do here is to say, well, we just don't know. It's an empirical question. And I think that that's true. We, we, we don't know um, what, is, what is going to happen. Uh, but we shouldn't be surprised by this development. We should not be surprised that the Muslim Brotherhood, the party of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Freedom and Justice Party, captured 45% of the parliament. And if to skipping to, to one of Ambassador Kurtz's last points about an ideology and what that ideology may be, I don't know what that ideology may be, but I would bet you that the Muslim Brotherhood is best positioned to articulate a vision for Egyptian society. And that's why they have done well. In addition to the fact that they have had an 80-year head start on their competitors, in addition to the fact that over the years they have provided social services to people in need that has become an important mechanism of political mobilization, that they have a vision, a materially and emotionally satisfying vision of Egyptian politics and society that is articulated in a, in a, in a religious vernacular that resonates with a lot of Egyptians. And that's why they have done so well. Now, what do they do with it? How do they manage the contradictions of now being in a position of authority, I think, remains to be seen. What I do think, however, and what I know about Egyptian society is that some effort to create some sort of Egyptian theocracy or version of Iran or, or whatever this scaremongering that we are hearing from certain quarters in Washington and elsewhere, I don't see how that's going to happen. Not because I'm namby-pamby about the Brotherhood and the Islamists. Not because I don't have my, my concerns or not because the Brotherhood has repudiated uh, 
years and years of, of, of rhetoric and, and their position on a variety of issues, no less the Salafists, but that this society is ideologically richer and more contested than we give it credit. One of the reasons, one of the other reasons why I wanted to write the book was that I was dissatisfied, including with my previous book, about the kind of two-dimensional, two-dimensional narrative about Egyptian politics. As I said, this was a, a richer political environment, a, a more ideologically diverse uh, political environment. I don't think after this uprising, after this moment of great national dignity, that a, a robust civil society, a well-educated, well-connected younger generation is going to try to let anybody get away with these kinds of things. I had just an amazing meeting with, with younger members of the Muslim Brotherhood who don't want to really impose anything on anybody. They are supremely confident in their Islamist values that they don't need to ban bathing suits and alcohol. They're confident that people will see the justness and righteousness of their values and will seek to emulate them. Besides the fact they don't want to be told what movies to see and what, not, what movies not to see. So I, I have more confidence in, in the robustness of Egyptian society than, uh, than uh, perhaps others. Perhaps that's naive. I mean, we could be reliving, uh, we could be, you know, uh, at the very beginning of something quite ominous, but I'm not, I'm not convinced of that. Let me, let me finish on, with a few, few comments on, on the military. I, my first book was called Ruling But Not Governing, and in part looked at Egypt. And I'm convinced that this is precisely what the Egyptian armed forces want. There is a narrative, and we, we need to look at this historically. There is a narrative that the Egyptian armed forces carries with them that is very, very important to them. That up to the June 1967 disaster, the Egyptian armed forces was a political army. That it was engaged in the day-to-day governance of the country. And that, in addition to the fact that tens of thousands of Egyptian men were pinned down in Yemen, that is the reason why they were battered so badly, not in six days, but actually in three days in June 1967. And that after this debacle, they returned to the barracks, they retrained, they re-equipped, they got serious about what their professional responsibilities are, and they achieved Egypt's greatest modern military achievement. It may not be the resounding victory that the Egyptians tell each other, but there is no denying that the crossing of the Suez Canal, which is still studied at the U.S. Military Academy, was a model military operation that nobody, nobody, nobody in the world gave Egyptians any chance of ever pulling off. And they did. And their narrative is that we got out of the business of the day-to-day governance of the country, and we were able to achieve the crossing. The crossing is very, very important in this narrative. And since then, they have had it pretty good. They have had a delegate at the presidency and a number of civilian governments, series of civilian governments since 1973, that have been responsible for the day-to-day government while they remain the ultimate source of authority legitimacy and power in the political system. That is what they want, and that is what is now under threat. 
And that is why you see many of the things happening now in Egypt. But I'm convinced that is precisely what they want. Now, can they pull it off? Can they continue to rule but not govern? Can they carve out a more or a, a more formally autonomous sphere, which seems to be the way in which they are moving? Something akin to the Turkish military during the 1980s and 1990s. I don't actually think that they can do that for a variety of reasons. Being one, it, pres- it presupposes a direct role in the writing of the Egyptian constitution. It presupposes elite support for uh, this autonomous role for the Egyptian military. And it presupposes that the Egyptian armed forces actually believes in something that resonates with broader uh, Egyptian society. Uh, none, of those, none of those conditions seem to hold. And what you see as a result is a kind of both ebbing of central state authority as the armed forces gropes for ways to manage the political arena. And that includes these tactical alliances with the Muslim Brotherhood that come and go as their political interests are satisfied. uh, Let me just finish up on, on, on these few points. The military claimed in January and February of last year, that it supported the legitimate demands of the Egyptian people. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is a counter-revolutionary force, and is a force in which the United States has relied for the better part of the last 30 years. It is now incumbent upon us to adjust to the new and more complicated realities of Egypt and the Middle East. It is not going to be easy for us to do that, given the sunk costs in the Egyptian military. What I do know is that everything that they are doing with regard to the NGOs and so on and so forth is because of domestic politics rather than a care for a strategic relationship with the United States that actually hurts them. We are in the process of, I can't decide whether it's the long goodbye or a messy divorce, but that distance, that divergence is coming, and it's now incumbent upon us to adjust to the new realities of the Middle East because we certainly don't have the leverage and influence to shape it on our own. Thank you very much. I look forward to uh, q Okay, we have some time for questions. Uh, so, yes. Yes. Um, thank you very much for the presentation. Well, let me just ask if, if you could identify yourself. Just I'm from... Asla Bali, and I'm here at the Spirit Institute. Sorry, Benson. Um, I had reflected on the question about the Egyptian military and the Egyptian military, and I look forward to reading the book. Uh, the first just follows on the last thing you said, which is that the SCAF has become a counter-revolutionary force. The U.S. has had a relationship for 30 years with the SCAF and so forth. So I wonder, with respect to Egypt and just more generally with the developments of the last year, do you view the U.S. at the moment as negotiating its role as a counter-revolutionary force? 
The second question I have follows on a question that Bernie Hakel put to you about what other institutions might be generating. I forgot that, yeah. Thank you for reminding me. And I'm just going to throw out a couple of institutions that I'd be interested in your thoughts on. One thing that hasn't emerged at all in this discussion is the security organs in Egypt, the Ministry of the Interior, uh, the relationship that the military is now negotiating with the Ministry of the Interior, and the security organs, which until um, the revolution, I think played a much more important role in governing uh, than the military did. And what do you think about that institutional relationship? And then um, along the lines of Bernie's suggestion, in terms of moderating, which I doubt very much the Ministry of the Interior is going to do, what do you think of the role of the judiciary or the upcoming constitutional process? Do those things hold some promise from that perspective? And then finally... Um, well, actually, I'm going to have to stop you because you actually only get one question. It, that, was, that was one question in three parts. And I'll, okay. I'll, I'll but, be, uh, but before he answers, I, I think what we should do is collect some sure. questions because we don't have a lot of time and then we can go and we can answer them. So the uh, floor is still open for questions. Yes. My question goes back to the military and the economy. There was a report today in LRB that one of the documents that was released by WikiLeaks uh, from the strategic forecasting group had to do with intelligence suggesting that the military in December had become very concerned with Mubarak's son and his relationship to some of the NGOs concerning the sale and privatization of uh, organization of uh, economic entities that the military owned, and that the military, in fact, had begun to put pressure on Mubarak to, to step aside. Uh, and then it, it goes on to the question in the paper that was presented by Strategic Forecast that the military stayed back, allowing the police to be the more repressive part, and that the military wants to hold on to its economic features. And the NGOs that Ambassador Kershaw talked about, really it's Freedom House, the International Republican Institute, and the Democratic Institute. Those three institutes were very much involved in the attempted coup in Venezuela, and they are very much free market and were supporting the model the sun in terms of privatizing the thing. Could you comment on any of that? Okay. Other questions? Yes. I'm Shazad Jr. in the Department of Eastern Studies. Um, so, uh, Professor Kurtzer, um, you, um, the impression that I got from um, your verbiage regarding the decline of um, Muslimun, um, the Muslim Brotherhood, was that it seems to be a very consolidated movement, and it seems, um, and of course there's like a very structured hierarchy um, I was wondering, um, Professor Jamal and Professor Hagel, whether you agree with that, um, and to what extent do you agree with that? And it seems that a lot of our, um, it seems that a lot of the discussion um, that Professor Hagel was posing was that whether um, whether Salafism could be integrated into democracy. And I wanted to kind of pose it the other way around: Is there space in Salafism for democracy? Um, additionally, uh, to what extent do we feel um, the effect of the Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamist movements are? consolidated as a whole, and to what extent do we feel um, that they have diversity in their opinions of how exactly to run a democratizing Islamic state or an Islamic state that is involved or engaged with the democratic world? Okay, and we'll take one more, and then we can have some answers. Uh, yes, in back. Two of the panelists oh, nodded affirmatively when there was reference to conspiracy theories. Could you elaborate on that just a little bit? And, and is that uh, perhaps does that perhaps offer some explanation of what has happened with the holding of the Americans uh, currently? Okay, so we have 
these microphones sure. here that we can use. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll start um, with the first question in three parts. Um, the question about the, the United States and, and its relationship to the Egyptian Ministry of Defense, I, I think that obviously after the uprising, we had to deal with who was in executive authority in, in Egypt, and that happened to be uh, happened to be the military. But there somehow has creeped into this reality that we faced a, a narrative that somehow the United States is supporting the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces that we advocate for, when in fact the situation is far, far more complex. In fact, there is a tremendous debate within the U.S. government about how to deal with the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces. Mm -hmm. Different factions thinking, well, maybe a Turkish model isn't such a bad thing. Other factions saying we need to impress upon the armed forces the, the urgency of getting out of politics and having, having free and fair elections, and we should use every tool available to us to promote democratic change and bring an end to this military dynasty. We never, they never resolved that problem because of the investment in the Egyptian armed forces and that they were the address. Uh, when you needed to talk to Egypt about a number of other th important things in the region or in Egypt, that's who you had to talk to. And somehow it turned into that we were uh, supporting Saddam. Now, if I was an Egyptian revolutionary, and had I been an Egyptian revolutionary and my wife not pulled me out of Tahrir Square, I would have been among the permanent revolution being absolutely distrustful of what the military was up to, knowing what I knew about the military. But uh, American foreign policy, as Ambassador Kurtzu pointed out, is, is it's far more complex and there was far more robust debate in, within the administration about what to do than I think uh, people on the outsiders, people on the outside uh, were uh, inclined to believe. The only reason why I know this is because of my previous work on the Egyptian Armed Forces and for almost a year after the uprising, the SCAF was willing to, to meet me and, and talk to me. So, Obviously, I was asked my opinion on, on, on a variety of these things. But it was not, there was never a question, these are our guys. This was not a 1952 redux of Ambassador Caffrey. You know, Ambassador Patterson doesn't refer to the SCAP as my boys. Um, on this question of, uh, of institutions, um, let me talk a little bit about the Ministry of Interior and the relationship with the Ministry of Defense. And then I'll talk about a little bit about the judiciary and the parliament. There is a belief that the Ministry of Defense, the SCAF, controls Egypt. And that's what they want you to believe. But in fact, these are government organizations that are in competition with each other. And there has long been a rivalry between the Ministry of Interior and the Ministry of Defense. And the Ministry of Defense looks down on the Ministry of Interior as a bunch of knuckle-draggers whose role is to keep Egypt's streets quiet. And that's why the Ministry of Interior much more involved in <coughs> politics and governance than the military up to, uh, up to the uprising. But if you think about this competition, it makes the events of Tahrir Square and the military appearing on the streets on Friday, January 28th, and subsequent events, and then events months later, like the attack on the Israeli embassy, and the events of Mohammed Mahmoud Street and Asralani Street, comes into clearer view, that these are two ministries, pardon me, I know this is being videotaped, that are out to screw each other. 
for what happened at those critical moments and, and, and the result of long-standing rivalries. Now, what could be institutions or groups that could moderate, play a moderating role here? Well, certainly the judiciary. It has a long history of fighting for its prerogatives and its independence and so on and so forth, but the judiciary has been compromised as well. Since the Nasser period, they have sought to politicize the judiciary in ways that there are endless numbers of judges who are part of this counter-revolution, had been willing to do the bidding of the, of the Mubarak regime, and may continue to seek to roll back uh, the promise, at least, uh, of Tahrir Square. I think the parliament, I think the constitution writing process, I think robust civil society are, can play moderating. And this is going to be a fascinating moment as Egyptians embark upon writing a constitution. Whether it ends up being something moderating or not, this is where they're going to work out these identity questions that have been plaguing Egypt for quite some time. And it is going to be the parliament which can legitimately claim for the first time popular mandate that is going to engage in a struggle with the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces that wants to shape politics in Egypt in its own way. So I do, those are my candidates. On the Constitution, remember that Egypt has had liberal constitutions in the past. 1954, the officers threw it in the garbage can. Elements of the 1971 Constitution were liberal. Sadat changed the 71 Constitution because it was becoming a problem for him. So I think that there are elements there. Let me finish, and then I'll let Dan talk about, and the other panelists talk about the Muslim Brotherhood and the, and the conspiracy theories, since they brought it up. Um, first of all, blanket statement on Stratfor. Um, Stratfor does not, to my mind, have a great track record. I'm still waiting for that Israel-Syrian war that they've been predicting for the last six, eight years uh, now. Um, and uh, you know, I haven't seen whatever it is that they've now produced on this, but what I do know is that the uprising resolved a political problem that the military was having. One of the reasons why we support the demands of the Egyptian people is, was important and an important lie was it, the uprising provided an excuse to push Mubarak. And that would end the Gamal Mubarak experiment. And there was uh, one, he never served in the military, and Gamal Mubarak becoming the president would uh, and that informal linkage between the presidency and the armed forces, but importantly, the people around, around Gamal Mubarak, people who are now on the run in London, in Dubai, and so on and so forth, who have been convicted for all kinds of uh, conspiracies and corruption charges, who by many measures are not, were economic reformers who saw that the military's pretty extensive economic interests uh, were a drag, actually, on the Egyptian economy. Because it runs on basically subsidized inputs. And they wanted to shine a light on this and dis essentially dismantle it. That would be their ultimate goal. So this provided uh, a way in which uh, the military ended, ended any kind of effort to shine a light on what it is they do behind the scenes. Conspiracies, Muslim Brotherhood, yeah. Salafis? Uh, just two brief comments. Uh, one, uh, on the uh, Muslim Brotherhood, I specifically said the opposite of what you suggested in the question, which was we don't know how they will govern um, or whether they can govern, but we're now seeing more diversity in their internal debates than we had been able to see previously. Some of it has to do just with uh, access to those internal debates on the Internet and through their various uh, websites. Uh, but even though we have that uh, better look inside the Brotherhood, 
We still don't know who's going to emerge uh, in, in terms of brotherhood leadership and how that plays over to their political wing or the political arm of the Freedom and Justice Party, which is another major issue, how these two um, manifestations of Islamism uh, will, will play out in Egypt. On the question of conspiracy theories, you know, Egypt is an example of something we see in a lot of places, which is a tendency to ascribe uh, internal problems that uh, don't have simple solutions to some, you know, external hand, a, a deus ex machina that's, that's uh, uh, put its hand on the country. And in this case, given the, the uh, size of the American hand or our footprint, uh, and uh, for the reasons that uh, Stephen suggested in his presentation, the perception over the years that the United States was in fact not so much to be thanked for what it did for Egypt, but to be uh, 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 chastised for having undermined Egypt's regional role and its pan-Arab leadership role, uh, this, these forces are now looking to the United States and saying, you are responsible for anything that's gone wrong in this popular revolution. I was there two weeks ago, a screaming headline, the US is responsible for sectarian strife in Egypt, asserting, and this was in Al-Ahram, which is still a government-owned newspaper. And it's a crazy idea that we would do this but it has resonance in a society that's looking for a reason outside of itself that it can excuse its own failures and blame them on others. That, that, that would be my view of that. Thank you so much. So on this theme of conspiracy theories, um, it's one that I often will uh, joke about in my class in terms of the uh, wide-ranging number of conspiracy theories, but when you sit down and you think about the nature and source of the conspiracy theories, and again, this question of whether there's something unique to the Arab world. I mean, what you see is that when you are living in repressive societies, when you don't know who's monitoring or listening or tape recording what you're saying, you become a bit paranoid. Um, and you begin to believe that, uh, you know, the regime is your own regime, your own government, your own kin, your own students, your own colleagues might be conspiring against you. So it lends itself to an overall environment uh, that's conducive to conspiracy theories, along with the set of issues that, as the book documents, that you know Egypt was never a primary concern of the foreign policy or the geostrategic considerations going on in the region. While you had a military and then a police apparatus that you know abused its own population, I mean, there are there 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 are horrible stories in here uh, about you know people being sodomized by the police and the police wanting to send a message to people, giving their families a DVD, I believe, or internet video, video of look what we did to your son, you know, um, because that's what the police could get away with, and nobody objected to this. So I think on the one hand, yes. There's a lot of conspiracy theories. On the other hand, when we appreciate the dynamics and the context um, in terms of how this emerged, we begin to probably appreciate how that happens. The Muslim Brotherhood, I think, you know, Dan, Dan uh, hit it right on the head really quickly. If we think we're going to have liberal democracy in the Arab world and that the only impediment to that is the Muslim Brotherhood, then we're being disillusioned. I don't think there's any movement in the Arab world, even the liberal movements themselves, that are going to basically assume power and have a liberal democracy the way we have in Western societies. Are these movements ready for democracy? More or less what we're, we're hearing, yes, procedural democracy. Liberal democracy was the result of 
several years of church-state relations in Western societies, you know, things that haven't really happened in, in, in the Arab world and probably won't happen for a very long time to come. Right? Yeah, I, um, just on conspiracy theories, I mean, they, they really are very... I mean, it's, it is, if you follow what's going on in Egypt, you hear about them from all sides. I mean, the way I think of conspiracy theories is, A, it's, of course a way for people who have no agency, no sense of control over their reality to explain that reality. But it's also a tool, it's a disciplining tool that regimes in the Middle East, but also elsewhere, have used in order to manufacture consent uh, from their people and to enforce a certain um, set of policies by blaming others. Uh, as far as the Salafis are concerned specifically, I mean, this is brought out in, in, in Stephen's book that basically Mubarak in the last few years towards the end of his regime was in fact using them uh, as a foil against the Brotherhood and, and because they were understood to be people who would always be obedient to the, to the ruler no matter how corrupt or uh, even tyrannical he, he became. And in fact, that proved to be true, because even after the revolution, in the first days of the revolution, the Salafis were going, coming out, you can see these videos on YouTube, saying that you know, rebellion is not permitted in Islam, and obedience is required by, you know, is required and by God, and it's, it's a sin to, to, to rebel. Now, if you look at Salafis, though, in general, and their history, not just in Egypt, but elsewhere, they've been a menace to other Muslims, principally. They, they, they really make life miserable for other Muslims. And they act, I, th I suspect in the Egyptian case, what they will do is that they will have the effect of the Tea Party on the Republican, uh, on the Republican Party in this country, which is to say that they will always be telling the Brotherhood that you're not holding true and fast to the most extreme uh, version of Islam that they promote. Well, thank you. We're unfortunately out of time, so I want to thank uh, the author, Stephen Cook, for coming here with us, and also uh, the panelists for their great presentations on the book. And uh, finally, let me invite you outside. We have some refreshments, and we also have the opportunity to purchase the book and to get it signed by the author.